Hey, hello, my name is Philip Canella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Today we're really going to have a conversation beyond science and religion uh, because my, my guest on this show is Bernardo Kastrup, who's been one of the leaders in defining a worldview that in fact goes beyond our current states of science and religion. Now this topic is common on this show. Uh, I think that the purpose of this show in my own mind is to uh, reach a point where we're moving beyond the orthodox views of science and religion. Expressed in the terms of science, we need a new scientific paradigm. If we want to be more dramatic, we could say we need a scientific revolution. Expressed in the terms of religion, uh, we need a faith, a system, a system of faith that unites the inner meanings of all religions. I continue to think that there's one world, and we should be able to have one theory that explains the world and, and does not compartmentalize it into different belief systems. Now, it turns out that as we approach this new paradigm, in my view, we actually find that it's an old one. In fact, the oldest one in history. This is the worldview of the mind, of the Vedanta, of Berkeley, of Hegel, Kant, Schopenhauer, a lot of those old German idealist philosophers, of Emerson. It's my worldview. It's also the worldview, I believe, of our guest today. And I think what's happening right now is that we have a number of people out there who are writing very insightful, uh, rigorous uh, books and studies, putting the language of idealism into the, the words, into the language of our modern culture. We're updating our language as we're updating our understanding. Now, we all know that mind plays a large part in the world. We know that mind influences our moods, our attitudes. We go to casinos, we blow on dice, we pray for rain, and we're always trying to send out positive vibes to make things happen the way we want it to, at least I do. Whether it works or not is another question, by the way. We also know, taking this a step further, that there's this whole field called, some people call the paranormal, the supernatural, parapsychology that shows that mind indeed seems to influence the material world. And the question has always been, how much? Is the physical world something out there existing on its own power? Uh, and therefore, is the mind, uh, through the method of science, only that vehicle through which we seek to understand this physical world, this independent physical world, through hypotheses and theories, or does the mind play a role in creating the physical world? Now, this is that, that radical sentence. Does the mind play a role in creating the physical world? That's always been the question, put, dif put differently and directly. Is the world a dream or machine, or is it somehow half and half? And as I said, this is a topic we're going to be talking today uh, with, with Bernardo, who is kind enough to be joining us from the Netherlands. Now, if you don't know about Bernardo, you probably should. He has a Ph.D. in philosophy and a Ph.D. in computer engineering. He's worked as a scientist in some of the world's foremost research laboratories, including CERN and Phillips Research Laboratories, where the uh, Casimir effect was discovered. He's also, he's also authored a number of academic papers books on philosophy and science. He's a regular contributor to Scientific American. I would recommend checking out his, his website because it's probably one of the most um, rich uh, sources of material in this area that's out there. He has a number of, of books, uh, any of, what, any of uh, which I would recommend, including Dreaming Up Reality, 
why material is, is baloney, uh, more than allegory, and his newest book is called The Idea of the World. Bernardo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's, let's set the table here a little bit by just telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and how, how you have evolved, if I may use that word, into a proponent of what I'm going to call modern idealism. How, how did you come to where you're at today? It's a long story. I started, I think, uh, pretty much in the, the usual ordinary uh, uh, materialist paradigm. Uh, I had a science education since very early. I went to university at 17. My early 20s, I landed at CERN in Switzerland working on, on data acquisition systems for the, the particle accelerator. And uh, one of the uh, approaches we tried at CERN, uh, a bit on the side, was uh, neural networks for uh, recognizing and identifying new physics, data regarding new physics coming out of the experiment. It didn't work, but it got me thinking about the relationship between arrangements of matter and mental events, what it is like to feel something, to see something, to perceive the world, to, to, to have a bellyache, to fall in love. Um, because I was working with these artificial neural networks, but it was obvious to me that they were not conscious. So what is the secret ingredient that would lead to consciousness was the question I asked myself. And then I realized that I was asking the wrong question. Uh, because all I've ever had uh, has been consciousness. Even uh, what I perceive of the world outside, the colors, shapes, sounds, smells, and tastes of the world outside, they are all mental processes, uh, mental events. And the idea that there is matter outside consciousness is a theoretical inference. We are always locked within consciousness. And it's a bad inference because uh, then we try to to, to explain consciousness in terms of an abstraction or a theory of consciousness. It's like chasing your own tail. Uh, you, you can do that at light speed, but you're not going to get to, 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 any, to any promising solution. Okay, so your uh, examination or your uh, sort of revelation, if I may say, about the oddity of explaining consciousness in terms of matter was that sort of the trigger for leading you down this road to thinking well maybe the picture is different than materialistic science is telling us pretty much because i was uh, it was my personal hobby many years ago to I, i'm a computer engineer that's that has been my first phd right. Uh, my hobby was to try to engineer neural networks that would approach something we could call conscious but uh uh, it's a dead end because there is nothing about matter in terms of which you could deduce the redness of red or, or what it feels like to have an, a bellyache, what it feels like to, to eat ice cream. Um, you know, matter are only quantities, position, mass, charge, momentum, space-time relationships. These are all quantities. It's pure abstraction. While consciousness is concrete, these are qualities, not quantities. And there is nothing about quantities in terms of which you could explain qualities. And once you realize that, you understand that we are approaching the problem from a, a completely wrong angle. We are trying to start from matter and end at consciousness. While any five-year-old kid would tell you that where we start from is consciousness. Then we theoretically abstract this thing called matter and we try to reduce consciousness to matter. That's, uh, we, you're approaching it from the wrong way. Yeah, and I, th I think that that is probably the, uh, one of the cleanest ways to describe what, what I, I guess I could call the, the, the grand error of modern science. And I, and I think that when you go back uh, to the time of Newton and the, the first scientific revolution where they the, the old guys, they sort of hypothesize this mechanical world and, and um, imagined that it was self-operating and went about determining the laws that made it work or, or the laws by which it operated might be a, a, a better way to put it. And then that, that hypothesis has sort of become rooted in the academic textbooks and in, in the in, in actually the mind of modern man or humankind that there is this 
independent material world, and but it leads to that that um, dilemma, which is really a paradox of then explaining consciousness in terms of matter, and that assumption, I believe, really colors uh, our misperception of the world. I think you're ex exactly right. Uh, that that is my own view, and what. I think we're trying to do here is to sort of unwrap the puzzle and twist and turn the perspective uh, differently. I th and I view that as what you're doing in a sort of a very methodical way. Is that is that about right? Well, you're trying to pivot here and say, let's let's see if we can explain things in terms of consciousness first as opposed to matter first. That's right, and, and maybe that's a good moment to introduce some disclaimers so people don't understand us uh, wrongly. Uh, when I say that there is only mind in nature, I don't mean that there is only my personal mind or your personal mind or even only personal minds. I do think that there is a world out there that is independent of my mentation, your mentation, anybody's mentation. Um, and science studies that world up there, and it tries to find its patterns and regularities of behavior. For a long time, we thought those regularities were rather mechanical. And to this day, uh, the world we can immediately apprehend with our senses, uh, apart from life, uh, does behave in a fairly predictable, mechanical way. Uh, my point is simply that this world outside is not made of something that is not consciousness. This world outside, which presents itself to us in the form of the screen of perception, is itself mental. It is constituted by mental processes, mental events, which appear to us in the form that we discern as rocks, moons, rivers, sand, and so on, and other living beings. For other living beings, it's sort of intuitive for us to imagine that behind the image, the material image we see, there is conscious inner life. But when, it, when you are talking about the moon or the inanimate universe as a whole, we tend to think that it's only the image and there is no inner life behind it. And my position is that there is inner life behind the entire inanimate universe as a whole. Not my cell phone, not a cup, but the entire inanimate universe as, as a unitary uh, whole. And what matter is, is simply how this inner life presents itself from an outside perspective. Your inner life presents itself to me in the form of Philip. And the inner life of the inanimate universe as a whole presents itself to me in the form of non-organic matter, stars, moons, planets, and so on and so forth. What, is, what, would, what would therefore be sustaining what I'm going to call the consensus reality? What's sustaining it? I think these are mental events, mental processes, which may very well be very instinctive, uh, that are outside our personal minds. And because they are independent of our personal mentation, they present itself to each one of us in a, in, in a consistent manner, which is what leads us to hypothesize a world outside our personal minds to begin with. That hypothesis, I think, is correct. There is something outside our personal minds. But we take it one step further and we say, not only there is this something outside, it's also non-mental. And that's one step too far that creates this impossible gap that we call the hard problem of consciousness. You cannot explain mental events in terms of non-mental events. But you can explain a class of mental events in terms of another class of mental events. For instance, my thoughts impact my emotions all the time. And my emotions impact my thoughts all the time. My perceptions impact my emotions all the time. And these are completely different, qualitatively different classes of mental events. Perception, thoughts, and emotions. They feel very different, yet they impinge on one another and influence or organize the dynamisms of one another. So my hypothesis is that, is that what is outside, beyond our personal spheres of mentation, are mental events that impinge on our personal mentation through our sense organs, creating the imagery we call perception or, or the world outside. And this outside mentation impinges on our inner mentation for the same reason that thoughts impinge on emotions and the other way around. Okay, so uh, first of all, 
is it your um, position that the world is an illusion? Um, the, the word illusion is very charged. Yeah, I know. Um, I think I've been, I've been accused of, 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 of having that position, which is why I'm asking you. I'm, I'm wondering what, what your view is of it. Go ahead. I think the world as it is in itself, independent of the qualities of perception, is very, very different qualitatively from the way it presents itself on the screen of perception. So from that perspective, it is kind of an illusion. I don't think the world as it is in itself, for instance, has space-time extension. I think what we call space-time extension is a cognitive process, very useful evolutionarily, that helped us survive. So we create space-time extension and then we populate it with you know, things we see, hear, uh, taste and smell, feel and so forth, because it, is, it has been evolutionarily uh, very useful, and it also helps us maintain what we call our, our thermodynamic integrity. Otherwise, we would dissolve into an anthropic soup. But it, it's a technical point; doesn't matter. So, from that perspective, the world as it is in itself, in my opinion, is very different from what we think it to be because of the qualities on the screen of perception. So, it is illusory, but it is not illusory in the sense that I think that there is a a a, a world out there with its own dynamisms, which would continue to go merrily on even if there were no living being looking at it. Well, well here, here's, the, here's one way I approach that question, which is that it doesn't matter what the two of us sit here and theorize about the world at large about the same world we all experience. We can call it a machine, we can call it a dream, we can call it a, the world's greatest illusion. It's not going to change the world. The world remains the same. The physical appearance remains the same. The question is, are we, do we have the right theories, the right mindsets to account for it? And that, and that I think, is something people forget about. That, uh, and, and I think, put in a different way, um, one of the approaches I take to this, and in fact it was... Um, you, see, you you know you you see that uh, I see that you have a, a degree in philosophy. There was something in one of Plato's dialogues. I think it's called the Theaetetus, where Socrates says something like, "Well, uh, if the world was a dream, as opposed to a hardened reality, we couldn't tell the difference." And and that that I think is is really is really important here, because folks, it's not as if we sit here and we say. The world is consciousness-based, therefore tomorrow is going to disappear. That's, uh, that, I think, is one of the fears that people have here. They think that, oh, you know, I don't want to live in a world of illusion, and therefore I'm going to, I'm going to go with the materialist. And that, that's something that I think underlies some of the resistance to the idealistic perspective. But, that, but what do you think of that? I mean, I, I mean that, that's my... I mean, I, I, I like to, I like to uh, ponder the question of what is the source of the resistance to this viewpoint, and that's one of them. But what do you think of that? And then maybe you could talk about other, other points of resistance that you've seen to, the, to your viewpoints. If you look at the history of Western civilization and Western culture, you see this oscillation in science and philosophy between on the one extreme saying that uh, we are in the center of the world right. and everything revolves around us and on the other extreme which is the extreme we were at uh, in, in most of the 20th century actually since for most part of the 19th century is this idea that that we are nothing that we are ephemeral like mayflies we are completely insignificant in the cosmic scheme of things and 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 our culture tends to oscillate between between these two extremes, um, sometimes a generation reacts to the position of the previous generation by pulling the pendulum all the way to the other side. And I think that's what happened uh, in the Enlightenment. Uh, in, in, in the 18th century, we were still um, in a culture in which you know, human beings were the center of the universe. 
and 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 the enlightened philosophers of the time i mean they appropriated this name by the way <laughs> they call themselves enlightened yeah um they they tried to swing the pendulum all the way to the other side to the point that they denied they denied mind itself they they postulated that even our own minds which is all we have is some kind of side effect of uh, material arrangements matter itself being this abstract entity without qualities qualities being somehow created in, inside our skulls by, by brain activity. Um, and that's the other extreme. And, and I think if we would, if we were able to, you know, jump into a time machine and go look at the world as it's going to be 100 years from now, 200 years from now, um, it will be something else. We'll be, we will be oscillating to another side of that. And eventually, hopefully, we'll end up in the middle, uh, in the center. And we will realize that in, in, in so far as the physical world we perceive uh, is concerned, we are the center of it. We create the physical world. And by physical world, I mean things with space-time extension, things that have form, shape. Uh, things that can be measured uh, and, and which have definite measurables, so to say, definite mass, definite momentum, definite position, and so on. This world, this definite world, which we call the physical world, is definitely something that we create through the cognitive process we call perception, and therefore we are the center of it. But there is something out there underlying this definite world. There is a space of non-definite mental events that do not have space-time extension. And that thing is much bigger than you or I, um, unfathomably bigger, uh, incommensurably bigger. Uh, we are just small little dissociated complexes of this universal mind. And, and from that perspective, we as dissociated segments of a universal consciousness, we are indeed nothing. As a matter of fact, we don't even exist. We are an illusion insofar as dissociation is an ephemeral mental process that eventually ends, and then hopefully we recognize our true identity. Yeah, I, that that was um, that was very very well put, and it leads. And I'm going to have a lot of comments on that, but it leads to this question, uh, which I'll start with which is, does God have a place in your metaphysics? It's another very highly loaded word, Thank maybe you. the most loaded word well, in human well, we history. Could call it, you know, I agree with you, and, and I want to say a parenthetical here. Part of the problem we have with the word God, I think, is that immediate, immediately people um, jump to the biblical God, and, and depending on who you are, that could be Jesus Christ, it could be God the Father, it could be uh, the God of uh, the Koran, it could be all sorts of things. And so I, I'm using God in the most broadest sense possible, and we could call it the source uh, or the primal being or, you know, universal yeah. mind or whatever. But, but so I want to remove at least that part of the loadedness of that term. Yeah. So yeah. just just with that preface, uh, now, uh, where does the source slash or, <laughs> or God fit into your metaphysics? I think if, if we, I mean, the Bible talks about God as being omniscient, right, which sort of entails consciousness of a, at a cosmic scale, at a universal scale. Is there a place for that? Absolutely. I think it is, not only is there a place for that, it is the most reasonable conclusion um, one can come to that the foundation of nature is a, a, a broad universal consciousness. And maybe more accurately, I could say that it is an unbound universal consciousness in the sense that it is not limited by, by space-time. Uh, so yes, that God, uh, I think, is certainly there if we define God in that way. That doesn't mean, however, that universal consciousness is uh, deliberate, that it is rational, um, that it has a plan for everything and everyone. And th that is not implied uh, when we say that there is a universal consciousness. For all we know, this universal consciousness is, is rather instinctive. And uh, it, it is doing what it is doing because it, it, its actions are entailed by what it is. It's not deliberate. These are not planned actions thought through. Um, it's universal consciousness just being itself, feeling, uh, uh, intuiting, whatever. 
uh, goes on from a first-person perspective in, in universal consciousness. And maybe that's why the laws of physics are rather predictable and not whimsical, uh, because universal consciousness probably acts instinctively, and instinct is very predictable. Uh, instinct is archetypal. There are certain templates of behavior that are very stable. You can see that being exhibited in, in lower animals. Uh, crocodiles are very predictable. For instance, bees and other insects are very predictable because they comport themselves according to this archetypal basic templates. Their behavior reflects what they are. And their behavior doesn't reflect premeditation, deliberation, uh, thought in a metacognitive level like you and I experience. So I'm not saying that God is instinctive. I'm saying that uh, it may be, uh, for all I know, it may be instinctive. Or not, I think there is only one piece of evidence that would indicate that universal consciousness is not entirely instinctive, that it at least it it's guided in some way by some teleology, some goal, and that is the exquisite uh, fine-tuning of the universal constants. Uh, I, I, I don't have a good explanation for that. I, know, I don't think anybody has. The explanation that scientists put forward is that, uh, well, ours is one of countless, uh, infinite uh, other universes, and in the other universes, the universal constants are not fine-tuned for life. And, and we happen to be in the one where they are fine-tuned for life because that's the only universe where you and I could have a reason. Well, I see the logic of that, but it's, it, it is the least parsimonious explanation one could possibly posit, which basically, you're basically saying that everything that could possibly exist exists in some parallel universe, obeying uh, countless other laws of physics. And this is just one in an infinitude. I mean, the, I find this uh, unreasonable, to say the least. So I don't like that explanation, although I feel vexed by the fine-tuning of the universal consciousness uh, constants uh, for life. So I would prefer that these were these were not the case, and then my my model would work very well. Well, well but, this uh, is this is okay. This is Philip Camello. This is conversations beyond science and religion. We're having a. A really entertaining, fun conversation here with Bernardo Castrop, the author of a number of books, um, including The Idea of the World, Why Materialism is Baloney, and Dreamed Up Reality. And we're talking about this new, I'm going to call it a new scientific paradigm based upon consciousness. And I think of all uh, writers out there, Bernardo is at the top, way close to the top, if not at the top, of, of the writers that are putting this worldview into the language of science, and it's not the language of science, it's the language of rationality. Uh, we're, we just, uh, we're discussing, we're just discussing the, the fine-tuning of the universe and how in modern science that leads to this incredibly odd concept of the multiverse, and I, I would put um, the multiverse <coughs> As, as probably the most ridiculous outlandish theory ever, um, I would put it up there with the inflationary Big Bang, um, and then of course the um, the creation of the of the material world to begin with. But the multiverse, to me, is a. I think I'm not the one who said this, but one of one leading scientist called it a cop out, and I forget who it was. You may know Bernardo, but. One of them called it a cop-out. That's really what it is. It's not an explanation. It's a cop-out because the multiverse says, well, since we're having this really hard time explaining why the world's so finely tuned, um, for example, why it just doesn't blow up or why it's not a big black hole or why things seem to work in such synchronicity, because we really can't explain it too well, let's just uh, – imagine that there's actually um, a near infinite number of universes and we just happen to live in the one that's finely tuned. I mean, if that satisfies anyone's need for an explanation, I don't know what to tell you, but if anything else, it shows we need a better theory. Now, with regard to why the world is finely tuned, I actually address that question in my own book, Bernardo, The Collapse of Materialism. Uh, and I think that the answer is not that difficult um, in a way 
if you start with uh, the forms of existence as you do. Now, I'm not going to get into it now because the show is really not about my book. It's about your your thinking. But in um, in my book, I do address that question. And I agree that you have to... Um, well, this is what makes this whole thing exciting. And this is what I think a lot of folks forget about and why I'm doing this. Because if you have a new scientific theory, and suppose the theory is the universe is consciousness-based, it's actually a projection of the universal mind. Well, then what you do is you try to explain experience and the physical world in light of that theory. Because that's really what you're doing, right? That's what, that's what we're doing here. And that's exciting because it's like, okay, well, we couldn't explain uh, mind over matter before, or we couldn't explain near-death experiences, or why people tend to believe in God or a higher power. And all of a sudden, these things become um, explainable. Or, or, and, and I think a big one that you, that you focused on is this whole question of consciousness. You know, the hard problem of consciousness, you talk about that in your, in your books a lot. And uh, and I'm, I'm going to let you talk about the hard problem of consciousness, uh, but, although you have, but I'd like you to express it in your own words so I don't put words in your mouth. And then I, I want to talk about how that really sort of uh, underlies this, this uh, intellectual uh, conundrum we, we, we fall into when we start trying to explain matter in terms of mind. Um, so the hard problem of consciousness is what in your mind, Bernardo? Yeah, it has a, it's a clear definition. Uh, the hard problem of consciousness is the impossibility to explain consciousness in terms of something else that isn't consciousness. Yeah. That's where we get stuck. Right, right. Okay, and so, so there, so if you start, if you flip it, and you say, well, let's try to explain matter in terms of consciousness. Now, you already articulated this. And one of the, one of the things that I, I have a article that I need to send to some, I, I need to either post it or do something with it. It's, it's basically, it's basically um, I think it's called a more probable worldview. And one of the things that we know for a scientific fact is that the mind is capable of conjuring up a real seeming world from nothing. And that is hallucinations or dreams uh, there's, or visions. You can say whatever they want, but we have, indis we have indisputable proof. And, and those, and, I, and I, I would recommend here the book by Oliver Sacks called Hallucinations for those. And Bernard, you, I'm sure you, Bernardo, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Oliver Sacks, who's now passed away a couple years ago. But anyway, his book, Hallucinations, is just overwhelming in terms of the power of the mind's ability to hallucinate and to conjure up real-seeming worlds from nothing. So we have indisputable proof that one mind can conjure up a real-seeming world, so I don't, I've never thought it's much of a leap to therefore say, well, a cosmic mind, a universal mind, whatever you want to call it, could conjure up the whole world. That's really what my, what, what my position is. So what is your thought about that? Let me stop there for a moment because that's really right. that that's really my logical connection to to the dream basis of reality. It, it is empirically clear that mind can create the imagery we call the world. Um, even materialists would deny that, would not deny that, because according to them, it is your brain that conjures up all the qualities that you call the world you inhabit, uh, although. Uh, it's modulated by something outside, by your sense organs, and so on and so forth. But it is empirically obvious that mind has the power to conjure up everything that we consider uh, to be the world. I think the key question is, why is the world that my mind conjures up uh, uh, entirely consistent, consistent insofar as we can tell, uh, with the world that your mind conjures up and with the world that uh, probably my cat uh, conjures up because if I step on my cat's tail in my world, I think something happens <laughs> in the world of my cat. Yeah. So we seem to be inhabiting 
a environment that is beyond our own minds and which presents itself to us as this uh, shared world that ultimately uh, uh, is conceived by our own mental processes. And I think that's what materialists try to explain by postulating that there is this known mental thing called matter out there, uh, which syncs up, synchronizes uh, uh, our own individual worlds. Um, I think unless you're a solipsist, unless you think that all that exists is your own uh, inner life, that everything everything else is just your dream, unless you are that, which I don't know anybody who adopts that view, you have to infer something beyond your personal mentation. Because it is this something beyond your personal mentation that explains our shared world and explains the fact that this shared world doesn't seem to care about what you think, what you want. It unfolds the way it does, whether you like it or not. Um, so I think it is valid to infer this something outside in order to explain you know, why our worlds are shared and so on. But it's not reasonable to, beyond saying that it's outside our personal mentation, to add the fact that it, to add this postulate that it is itself non-mental. I think we can make sense of it by just saying, well, there is mentation beyond our personal minds and we are dissociated from it. In other words, even though all I can directly experience is what I can see from horizon to horizon, I will reasonably infer that the earth continues on beyond the horizon that I can personally experience. Uh, and that explains why we are all sharing the same planet, including the Chinese on the other side of, of the Earth. Uh, so that, that's a metaphor. And then the equivalent would be to say, well, uh, all I know to exist is mind, because that's all I have, mentation, experience. But I will infer that experience extends beyond my personal horizons. And that explains why we all seem to inhabit the same world beyond the, 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 the direct control of our evolution. That, I think, is the way to go and not to add the property of non-consciousness to it because then we create this divide between something that is consciousness and something that isn't and trying to explain one in terms of the other. Uh, it's a completely abstract, artificial divide that is insoluble and it doesn't need to be solved because it's an artifact of thought to begin with. Yeah, I, th I think that that... Uh was again uh, very clearly put and if you look at it from the scientific standpoint if you from the process of reasoning you start with if you start with the hypothesis this tentative guess educated guess and you say okay the source of the world is consciousness and then you move to the next step and which is well, how is it possible for everybody to experience the same world? And that's one of the big questions. And to me, I th the answer is, again, sort of right there, which is we're all part of the same consciousness, of the, or, or we're all part of the united consciousness, or we're all part of the source, whatever word you want to use. And therefore, you share the same world, and the world's united at its base as opposed to united in the heavens. The, the modern scientists, I think, they sort of put this big, I, to me, when they say there's an independent world, a world independent of consciousness or, or of perception, what they're really saying is we can't explain it, so we're just going to continue assuming it. And I think, I think that that is really... What what's going on here, Bernardo? I think that they're just a, it's like a placeholder. It feels good, even though we know from quantum theory, entanglement, and all this other stuff that that can't possibly be true. You know, how can there be a world independent of perception? Yeah, I think there are two questions here. Um, is there um, a world that underlies perception, but uh, would be exactly the same? and present itself in exactly the same way, uh, regardless of who is looking at it, um, or regardless of the perspective from which it is observed? That's one question. Um, the answer to this first question, I think, is it is not true. 
and we know that from quantum physics. Um, uh, insofar as what we consider to be the physical world is definite, has definite position in space-time, has definite mass, has definite momentum, uh, that definiteness arises only from observation, and it depends on how the observation is done. We know that experimentally. So whatever is out there, it isn't definite. It, it is not what it seems to be, because the moment you look at it, uh, there is already an interaction between the one doing the looking and the one being looked. And what you perceive is then the result of that interaction. It is not something that exists independent of the interaction. Um, this does not necessarily depend on idealism. I mean, even if the world were classical, suppose quantum physics didn't exist and we didn't know about any of these anomalies uh, that arise from quantum mechanics, uh, I would still be an idealist because I would say, well, the world out there is definite, all right? It does not depend on observation, but it is itself mental. It is constituted of mental qualities which present themselves to me in the form of the physical world on the screen of my perception. So I would still be an idealist, um, but it... it the reality of the situation, the state of play today, is that it is even worse than that. Uh, whatever is out there isn't definite and only becomes definite upon an act of observation, which sort of reinforces idealism. Because before, you know, you could be a materialist or an idealist, and the distinction between the two is that idealism is more parsimonious. It uh, postulates less things. It doesn't necessarily postulate anything beyond matter. Well, it doesn't postulate anything beyond matter. But in the second case, you could make an empirical case for idealism and say that materialism must be empirically discarded, irrespective of philosophical tastes, irrespective of philosophical values like parsimony, explanatory power, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, is, it is empirically uh, um, unsustainable uh, because the very intuition behind materialism is this idea that there is definite matter out there. Well, guess what? There isn't anything definite at all. Whatever is definite is uh, relative uh, to the observer. So what is the only thing we know of that isn't necessarily definite? Well, that is mentation. Uh, mental activity is not definite. I mean, suppose you get a job offer and you can't make up your mind about uh, accepting or, or refusing it. Well, for as long as you don't make up your mind, you live in an indefinite mental state in which both options, accepting the job offer and refusing the job offer, sort of coexist at the same time in your mind, or uh, what in psychology is called, um, uh, the name escapes me now, uh, well, never mind. Uh, mental states do not need to be uh, definite. Uh, they can even be contradictory and somehow leave at the same time in your mind. That's in, a, that's in the name, cognitive dissonance. Uh, we all experience cognitive dissonances. We may love somebody but also be afraid of that person. That's a cognitive dissonance. You know, fear and love are the opposites. So how come we feel both at the same time? So I think uh, uh, the weirdness of quantum mechanics, the fact that all physical quantities are necessarily relative to the observer, which is something that has been observed many years ago. For instance, Carlo Rovelli observed this in 94. He said the theoretical implication of quantum mechanics is that uh, all physical quantities are relative. Uh, this year, in 2019, um, a big part of this has been empirically proven in the laboratory that indeed quantum mechanical descriptions of the world are entirely observer-dependent. Well, if that is the case, then what is out there is not definite. And the only thing we know that can be not definite is mentation. So what is out there is indefinite mentation that becomes definite once we interact with it through an act of observation or perception in the case of human beings. Well, I, I've always thought that one of the great contradictions of the modern mind, and I'll call it the modern scientific mind, is how... Um, mainstream orthodox scientists such as the Lawrence Krauss's of the world could hold two contradictory thoughts in their head. The, the contradictory thoughts are quantum theory and particle physics or quantum theory and the Big Bang. Any, any view that holds those in the same time is gotta be wrong because those 
worldviews are inconsistent. Quantum theory, and this, I, I really think it's interesting, and I would recommend this book that uh, Ken Wilbur put together. I've said it before, in this, I mentioned it before in the show, it's really a compilation of, um, it's called Quantum Questions, and it's, a, it's one of his first books. It's a compilation of excerpts from various books and articles that the founders of quantum theory um, wrote, and it shows that a lot of the founders of quantum theory, such as Schrodinger and Max Planck, were really had a mystical side to them. They they knew that what they were discovering was 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 really showing the omnipresence of mind, um, and there it's really remarkable that, and, and I really think they were truer to the to the real meaning of quantum physics, where if you go in the modern world, we have all these physics books, a lot of popular books talking about how how it's uh, how bizarre it is, it's weird, can't be explained, uh, but then at the same time, they don't interpret it consistently with the result of the experiment. They don't, they don't, uh, you know, the meaning of quantum theory or what it says about reality is still an unanswered question. Why? Because they can't get rid of their independent material world assumption. See, I think that quantum theory is exactly consistent with the dream hypothesis. What did you expect to find? Did you expect to find a little ball bearing at the base of reality? Well, you didn't find that because there isn't any, any such thing. You found a quantum wave. You found really energy. You found nothing. And so I, I think that quantum theory really it, it hasn't give, hasn't been given the credit it's due but i think it really shows that we live in a in a mind created world i don't that's my opinion i i just think that if you read it if you read it consistently and you read the um like quantum enigma is a book that's pretty um pretty fair to these questions so yeah. you know what I'm, i mean and there's there's a number of them which go in this direction uh, but I, I think it's something that the modern mind and modern the, and the modern scientific mind has not has not yet reconciled itself to. They still hold on like with a death grip onto this material world. Well, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, you yeah. you've touched on a lot of different points. I know. I um, really bounced around it, didn't I? I, I have a mental <laughs> list here. Let me take them one <laughs> okay, by one. Okay, go ahead. Um, there's no question that many of the founders of quantum mechanics were idealists. Um, that, and that's on record. That doesn't necessarily imply that idealism is correct. It only means that some of the, you know, the monsters of physics thought that idealism was a reasonable metaphysics to to accommodate uh, empirical observations. Um, I do not necessarily know why quantum physics and Big Bang theory would, in principle, contradict one another. I, I, I don't know why that would be the case. Um, there are issues, there are theoretical issues as we approach the moment of the Big Bang, theoretically, as we approach that singularity, there is a certain breakdown of the laws of physics and there are difficulties uh, involved in that. There are difficulties in reconciling quantum mechanics with uh, gravity, with relativity. Um, there have been major efforts uh, and major progress at, at reconciling them. For instance, today we have quantum field theory, which is the relativistic version of the original quantum mechanics. So there, there are issues, but I don't see any in principle contradiction there from a scientific point of view. However, we have to keep in mind that science and philosophy are different things. What science does is to make sense. Well, what science does is to observe and model the regularities of nature's behavior. Uh, science looks at how nature behaves itself and tries to find these patterns, these commonalities, these regularities of nature's behavior, and it encodes that in a model that we call the laws of nature or the theory of, of everything, whatever you want to call that. It's a theory about nature's behavior that allows us to predict nature's future behavior and on the basis of that develop technology that leverages this behavior. That is science, and it has nothing to say about what nature is. It has only a lot to say about how nature behaves, not about what it 
is. What nature is, is a question of metaphysics. In other words, you're looking beyond physics, beyond the behavior, into the being of nature. And that's why it's called metaphysics or ontology. And that's an issue of philosophy. And that requires a different set of instruments and a different methodology. Metaphysics depends on observation insofar as we cannot have a metaphysical theory that contradicts observation then you know it's wrong. But there are many different metaphysical theories that are consistent with, with observations. In other words, observation does not determine a metaphysics, it only determines a physics. How you choose a metaphysics, it's a matter of logical consistency, it's a matter of uh, theoretical parsimony, you don't want to postulate lots of things beyond what you can experience. Um, and to some extent, it's a matter of taste and disposition to some extent. In the ideal world, we would not need any metaphysical theory, we would stick with physics, but we are meaning-seeking animals, we need a story. And today we have a very bad story uh, on the basis of everything we do know. And our effort now, at least my effort, is to come up with a better story, a much more empirically adequate, internally consistent story, more parsimonious. But that's an issue of metaphysics. I think where some of the spokespeople of science, you mentioned one name, um, where they go wrong is that they conflate science and philosophy. They think that science... Uh, determines what the universe is. Well, guess what? It has nothing to say about that because the scientific method is not made to figure out what things are. It's only made to figure out how, to figure out how things behave. So scientists who conflate science and metaphysics are just philosophically ignorant. Uh, I would even say, use the word stupid. I think they're literally stupid. They're talking about things they do not know. Uh, they are talking about ways of thinking, methodologies that they are not aware of, and they are so ignorant of them that they think they don't exist or they don't, they don't need to exist. And because science has accumulated so much cultural cachet in our society today, because it enables technology and technology is all dominant, we forget uh, nonetheless, that, uh, you know, technology also has nothing to say about what things are, even though it works. Look, a, a, a five-year-old kid can be the world champion in playing a certain computer game. A five-year-old kid can play many games much better than I do, actually all games, because <laughs> I'm very bad at all computer yeah, games. Yeah, welcome to the club. <laughs> I'm great to so, play a game with, by the way, because I, I tend to lose, but go ahead. Yeah. So although this five-year-old kid is an expert in how the game behaves, how the characters move, what they do, and it's an expert at navigating that uh, sphere of behaviors and win the game, the kid knows nothing about what the game is. The kid knows nothing about the software underlying the game, the hardware underlying the game, you know, all the electronics, engineering, and computer science that went into making the game behave the way it does. All the kid knows is how it behaves, and, and it knows it so well that it can win the game every time and be the world champion. Well, guess what? Science is like the five-year-old kid. We know how nature behaves. We can put that behavior to our use we call technology, we call that technology, putting nature's behavior to our own use. And because we are so successful at it, like the five-year-old kid uh, being world champion, we think that we know it all, but actually we don't. We are completely ignorant at what, uh, uh, in regards to what underlies that behavior. And that's the, the blind spot of science spokespeople. And I yeah. say science spokespeople because it's not a blind spot from most real true scientists who yeah. do not have time to be talking to the public because they're doing science. Most of them are pretty much aware of the limitations of the scientific method when it comes to the being of things. Uh, but the spokespeople of science are playing a media game and, well, they do what they do. It's unfortunate, but, uh, yeah, that's, well, that's the well, world we live in. Well, well, you know, you said something very important. I, I, I was going to interrupt you, but then you made the point I was going to make, which is that although from a academic and conceptual standpoint, science and philosophy are different. I completely agree that science is more of the, of the how does this thing work, uh, describing the laws, the regularities, trying to make predictions, as opposed to what is the origin of ultimate reality. 
the what I whether it's whether the word is overconfidence, which is sort of the one I like, or uh, lack of lack of competitors, or for whatever the reason, many, in fact, I think the majority of the leading scientists are so confident uh, in their in their positions that they become little philosophers, and and they they let their their materialistic uh, biases influence philosophy. I mean, I know that there's the book by Steven Weinberg called Dreams of a Final Theory, where he basically says there's no use for philosophy because the world's real, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take it as as you know hard rocks. It, I touch it, it it resists me. It's a real world, and that's all I need to know. Well, that happens to be a metaphysical. I mean, I'm sorry, a materialistic metaphysics. Now, he just he just practice metaphysics without explaining how his world is possible. And and that's really what one of the struggles we have here. Now I want to make one comment about the Big Bang and then I'd like to ask you a one closing question here. And I, I want to say that maybe you know we seem it, it's not necessary for us to agree upon everything for you to be on the show. It wouldn't be any fun. I, I want to say that for me the Big Bang is, is, is a materialistic conception of creation. I do think that creation does come from the united mind. I think, it, I think it was a Big Bang of creativity as opposed to a Big Bang of matter. So I just want to put that, I just want to say that that's probably a topic for some other time because that is, is, is a rich topic perhaps. But one thing that I want to make sure I ask you, because you've been out there, you are... Uh, very credentialed. You've written Scientific American. You've done, you've done a lot of interviews. What do you see as the future here for the idealistic enterprise? What do do you see the resistance changing at all? Do you see any hope for this uh, approach becoming more mainstream in our lifetimes? I'd just like to have you talk, Bernardo, about about the acceptability or the acceptance of this way of looking at things. Well, I think if I if I live as long as my life expectancy today, <laughs> uh, I think idealism will become mainstream in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, uh, because the shortcomings of uh, materialism or mainstream physicalism, as the, the accurate name is, um, are just too obvious, are just too glaring to anybody who is acquainted with the issues. Of course, you know, many of the science spokespeople are just not acquainted with the issues, and they are just talking about things they, they do not know anything about. It's a, it's a funny mixture of a hubris and an absolute ignorance, yeah. uh, which unfortunately plagues our society at all levels, not only from the materialist level, right. but many other isms as well. Right. Um, but um, if, you, if you ignore uh, those um, idiots for a moment, um, I think the problems are just too glaring uh, to be uh, to continue to be accepted. Um, I think in the 21st century, we are less moved by the momentum against superstition that sort of propelled uh, the Enlightenment in the 18th century. That momentum is sort of wearing off because many of the things the Enlightenment uh, philosophers and scientists were fighting against today are, are not taken seriously to begin with. So there's nothing to fight against and then you lose that momentum. So we are becoming more unbiased. And if you look at the issue in an unbiased manner, uh, you will you will start by discarding materialism. That's that's the starting point of it all. And then you will get into the other options. You know, uh, panpsychism, constitutive panpsychism, uh, cosmopsychism, and, and there are there are all kinds of debates and, and discussions going on in academia, academia today about that. But one of those will gain um, the position of sort of cultural mainstream, maybe even two or three in our culture will be in a position in which we remain sort of uh, undefined, uh, but we reduce the set of options that we are starting with. And I think this will all happen in my lifetime. Yes, if, if, I, if I live to be whatever my life expectancy is. <laughs> well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that needle keeps moving. Um, the, for all of us, but the, what, what difference do you think it's going to, what difference would it make? 
oh, it would make uh, an enormous difference. I think many of our knee-jerk reactions, many of our sort of instinctive behaviors today uh, are uh, secretly motivated by, by materialism. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about metaphysics here, not materialism in the sense of a way of living, right. but uh, there is a relationship, a strong relationship between the two, and it's not only the name. I mean, if you leave under the impression that all that there really exists is matter, and that consciousness is just some side effect of particular configurations of matter that eventually will dissolve and consciousness will disappear, then what other meaning can life have other than the accumulation of material goods? Because matter is the only thing that exists and endures. Everything else is ephemeral. Everything else is sort of epiphenomenal. Um, So, you know, you you live to accumulate material goods. And... uh, you don't care about the long-term future because you see, you know, up to your grandchildren, uh, you may care about the world they will live in. But from your grand, great-grandchildren onwards, I mean, those future generations are abstract to you. So if the whole thing is going to do kaboom and disappear a hundred years from now, you don't care because you're convinced that your consciousness is going to end, that uh, everything that you are. Or, every, or everybody that you care about will not be in existence anymore. So you might as well just plunder the whole thing today because why do you care? It's all coming to an end for you anyway, rather short. If all these assumptions now are off the table and you realize that oh, what you call personal identity is indeed transitory, you as a person is going to die, but the consciousness that you are that underlies all that is going to continue because it has nowhere to go. It is, it is the only thing that exists um, and everything that happens happens within it. Um, then now it's a whole different story. Do you live for matter or do you live for insight? Because consciousness is all there really is. Yeah. Um, uh, will you not care for the world as it is 100 years from now? Because whatever there will be 100 years from now, it's also you. So I think that will change our cultural values uh, long term. It will take longer than the time needed to change our metaphysics. Because after the metaphysics change, it needs to percolate through society, uh, and then our behavior will change. And it, it actually may be too late even for that. We may end our, ourselves yeah. before that. Uh, but if not, it will eventually happen. Yeah, well, that uh, I would agree with, with what you're saying. And I, and I want to add this, and that one of my um, bugaboos about the materialism uh, the uh, materialistic perspective is that it tends to um, move people to take the world for granted. And when when we have scientists like Steve, like the late Stephen Hawking saying that we're just a random creation on a meaningless planet, we're chemical scum. He used the word chemical scum on a on a average planet, and that uh, we just happen to be here. That. <clears throat> If you from the that to me that denigrates what I consider to be the miracle of a world, and it is really uh, when you go to the consciousness based, I I think there's a greater appreciation for the fact that we're all writing out a miracle, and that this is in the source documents um, for for Eastern religion. That's a lot. A lot of a lot of those early the Vendata, a lot of those early books, the Rig Veda, it talks about this. Talks about how um, the world is really a a a miracle, and folks don't appreciate it. it, it and that that and that's even in the Koran, the the lack of gratitude towards God. I mean, there's all that that's underlying a lot of this problem I have with materialism. So before I give a couple of closing comments, Bernardo, first of all, thank you very much. Um, I, we covered a lot of ground, not a lot of, uh, there's, it was impossible to cover everything and do justice to all these topics, but uh, I think that uh, folks have, have a sense of where you're coming from. Is there, any, uh, I, is there anything you'd like to say? Uh, I, I, uh, in closing, I'd like you to at least talk about how, how folks could learn more about you and your website and that kind of thing. Well, uh, they can go to my website. That's bernardocastrop.com. 
So uh, Bernardo with an O at the end and Kastrup with a K, K-A-S-T-R-U-P dot com. And from there, they can they can go off to uh, to everything that I have online, my videos on YouTube, freely downloadable papers, my Scientific American essays. I think they get three for free every month. So in a few months, they can, they can read them all for free. Uh, and everything else I do, uh, there, are, there, there are links to everything from my website. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And, and in closing, I just want to say that there's a famous book, uh, probably, the, I think it was called the most, the best scientific book of the 20th century, which is The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. And that book, which I mention a lot in the show, if there's one thing that that book taught is that uh, when a scientific paradigm um, becomes unable to explain human experience, and it's time for a change. And I, I really think that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a classic scientific revolution, changing out one paradigm, which is the materialistic paradigm, with a consciousness, consciousness paradigm. And I am encouraged to believe and to know that over time, and particularly even over the time I've been doing this show, that the the momentum behind this viewpoint is increasing. There's, a, there's the, the number of experiences people are reporting that can't be explained, whether it's uh, near-death premonitions, paranormal, um, uh, synchronicity, all these strange things, whether it's that or whether it's rigorous thinkers like, like Bernardo here um, who are sort of leading the charge to this, to this new worldview, um, I am encouraged to believe that I think this is going to happen soon. And I do remember, unfortunately, Bernard Arnold, that one quote, is it Wigner who said that science progresses funeral by funeral? I mean, <laughs> some, sometimes you have to wait for the old, the old charge to, to pass away, to the new people rise up. That may be what happens in the end here. But the bottom line is that um, we, ha we are heading towards, I think, something that is, is going to have broader applicability, much better explanatory power, and I will say much more promising for the future of our little world. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.